When I was in high school, I loved being alone. I loved being alone. We just said, you you met my brother Abel last week. I loved being alone. (laughs) I had five of those goons in my house. I was the oldest of eight kids, two sisters as well. And whenever uh, I got sent to my room or was told, don't get, get away from your brothers or your sister, that wasn't a punishment to me. That was an invitation to paradise. It was a mandatory vacation from my crazy family. I resonated with with Kevin McAllister. I I made my family disappear. Yes! What a wonderful thing. I loved loved being alone. And that's one of the reasons that, that we take vacation, right? We take it so that we can get away from the hustle and bustle, from, the, from those people, from the traffic, from the crowds, the constant rudeness, the issues, the problems, those two-legged nuisances that just disrupt our world and won't leave us alone. When people think of paradise, so many people think of an empty beach. It's just the waves crashing and it's soothing and we're completely alone with the wind and the waves. The only thing we have to worry about is our suntan. Oh, to be alone. Charlie Chaplin wrote, life could be wonderful if people would leave you alone. Time alone can be great. Amen? And yet being alone can be the worst. What a terrible thing it is to be alone. Alone can be a a dark, empty, hopeless, joy-starved, terrifyingly lonely place. It can be a fearful place. Psychologists have labeled extreme cases of the the fear of being alone. They've labeled it isolophobia or monophobia or autophobia. And I think there are others out there as well. Those are the extreme cases And yet I think there's a certain fear of being alone that is shared by everyone from one degree to another. We might enjoy periods of getting away, but to be truly, totally, permanently alone, that could be awful. Listen to what one doctor wrote in Psychology Today. This fear of aloneness is a problem we don't talk about enough. And in these hyper-connected times, this problem is only getting worse. Texting throughout the day and spending hours and hours online in the virtual presence of others, it disables our capacity to be alone. In his now classic 2009 article, The End of Solitude, literary critic, and I'm going to botch his name, essayist William Dershowitz, something like that, explains our contemporary dilemma clearly, and she quotes him, the more we keep aloneness at bay, the less we are able to deal with it and the more terrifying it gets. And so the more people are connected through technology, through these, these, these cell phones, uh, the ability to text, send email, calling, FaceTime, uh, Skype, all of these different things, the more they, they, they take advantage of all these different things, the harder it is for them to cope with those moments when they actually are alone. Orson Welles wrote, We're born alone, we live alone, 
we die alone. Only through our love and friendship can we create the illusion for the moment that we are not alone. What a depressing thought. That, that being with people, even people that, that we love, that only gives us the illusion that we're not alone. This morning, we're going to look at a few snapshots from one man's life that point to a reality that's actually the exact opposite of what Orson Welles would have us believe. The illusion is not that we are not alone. Rather, we've come to believe an illusion when we think that we are alone. In other words, thinking ourselves to be alone, that's a fantasy. The reality is we're never alone. Snapshot number one, famine and promise. Isaac was not alone. He was not alone. With his mother gone, the recent passing of his father Abraham, he may have felt alone. That's often the way we feel, isn't it, when we've lost a loved one? What now? How am I going to go on? How am I going to keep going on without that person that I've counted on so many times to keep me going on? And those feelings, they get especially strong when some complication or some challenge comes up into our lives. And in this moment, we, we know that I can't handle this on my own. I need help. I feel so alone. For Isaac, it was the situation. It was famine. Verse 1 says, Genesis 26 verse 1 says this, Now there was a famine in the land, beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now famine, it was not uncommon in that part of the world. The climate, it's not all that different from the desert we live in here in Southern California. It's arid. It, it didn't rain much. There would be... Good years, occasionally, but when those long stretches came without rain, there wasn't much chance of growing food. And so Isaac does what his father did, and he heads down toward Egypt. We got to find water. We got to find food. We got a family to take care of here. Now, I'm not sure that he wasn't unaware of the, well, I, I'm sure that he was aware of the promise that God had given his father Abraham. The promise that, that all of Canaan, all this land was going to be yours. But desperate times called for def desperate measures and, and, and he had to leave. I think he thought this was his only option. And he arrives in this place called Gerar. And that's when he stopped dead in his tracks. Look at verse 2. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. 
What an incredible moment this must have been. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. To have heard the stories for so many years from dad and mom. To have watched his father's faith. To have hoped in the promises that he had been told. To have seen the Lord's provision. And now to know that God not only spoke to dad, God speaking to me. That's awesome. The stories were true. The provision was real. The promise, it's still on. God would be with me. But there was a condition. God gave him a very specific order. And to follow that order, Isaac's faith, his trust in God would be put to the test. God said, remember? He said, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. Isaac had to stay in a land where there was no water and no food. He was going to have to follow in his father's footsteps and trust that God was going to provide as he camped in Philistine territory. Now verse 1 tells us that the king of the land was named Abimelech. Now it's possible that this Abimelech is the same Abimelech that interacted with his father some 80 years earlier. It's also possible that Abimelech is just a dynastic name. And so every king of Gerar is called Abimelech. It's possible. But regardless, Isaac's trust in God's presence and confidence that God would be true to his word, that was enough for him to stay. He heard God's voice. God said, stay. I trust God, so I'm staying. Isaac's faith in God was real. And the knowledge of God's presence, God said, I will be with you, that kept Isaac in the promised land. That's snapshot number one. On to number two. Verse seven says this, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was very attractive. She was attractive in appearance, it says. So we said, Isaac followed in his father's footsteps. We weren't kidding. This is uncanny, right? William Shakespeare wrote, the sins of the father are to be laid upon the children. And it does seem to be true, doesn't it? The older we get, the more we come to realize that we're a lot more like mom and dad than we ever thought we would be or hoped that we would be. And here Isaac falls prey to the same fear that moved his father to lie. You would think that after hearing God's voice and God's promise to be with him and bless him, that Isaac would trust God to protect him. And here he was trusting that God is going to provide him food and water in a place where there was no food and no water. He's trusting God in that. Did he not think God big enough to protect him from the hands of, of these locals that, was one, that were wondering if his wife was unattached? I don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. But what is certain is that while well, the promise of God's presence, it clearly impacted his decision to stay put. It seemed to have no influence, though, over his decision to lie about his wife. No impact whatsoever. Isaac, 
what are you doing? How could you have been so inconsistent? Make up your mind, buddy. Come on. Trust God. What Isaac does, though, isn't any different than what a lot of people who know a thing or two about God sometimes do. He allowed the feelings of his heart to be uninfluenced by what he knew and believed in his head. Years ago, I had someone who was really struggling to control their anger. Basically, they weren't controlling their anger. And they said to me, I know what's right in my head, but my feelings will not allow me to do it. That's a tragedy, isn't it? A tragedy. What a sad thing to be so enslaved to your feelings. What a tragic thing to be able to say no to the desires of your heart when you know that they're wrong or you know that they're going to either cause you harm or others harm, maybe both. And yet even as I say that, I know that's often the way it is with me. Is it that way with you sometimes? God's revealed powerful presence, it should have filled Isaac with such confidence that the advances of these Philistine men would have had little effect on him. And yet because that truth that God was with him had not settled in and ruled his heart, he succumbed to temptation and acted like God had abandoned him. God's presence it should have crushed his fear, but instead he felt the need to take the protection of himself and his wife into his own hands. And the result? Well, it's not good. Verse 8. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah. Now, I don't know if they were laughing about how they had fooled the Philistines or if something else was going on. The details really aren't important. What is important is that the jig is up. In a careless moment, Isaac and Rebekah had given their hand away. Apparently, unlike his father, Isaac actually had a lot more success in this lie. The scheme worked for quite some time. It says they had been there a long time. But, you know, in the end, it really didn't matter. It didn't matter. Isaac, Isaac's lie, it was bound to be found out. It was just a matter of time. And when it was found out, it enraged the king. Verse 9, so Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I, I die because of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife will surely, shall surely be put to death. As we noted with Abraham, I think it's important that we take notice here with Isaac. What a sad thing it is when those who don't know God are able to rightly point the finger of judgment in the direction of those who do. 
This is a sad thing. In Isaac's case, he was completely in the wrong. Abimelech was in the right. And so whatever witness, whatever chance Isaac had to show these godless people how wonderful it is to know, to love, to rely on God, in an instant just went, it went up in smoke. It was gone. Have our lives, have, have our failures to live life in line with what we know and believe, have they impacted a watching world negatively? There are times when we think we can, we can let our guard down. Times when we think we can get away with compromise. Times when we think we can live our lives as if God doesn't exist at all and no one will know about it. It's not going to harm anyone. But we're wrong. The reality is every moment of our lives, whether we're aware of it or not, every moment of our lives is lived coram deo. It's a Latin phrase that simply means before the face of God. You and I live every moment before the face of God. That's what Psalm 139 tells us. R.C. Sproul wrote, To live coram deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. So it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing or if there's no one in sight. Every second of our existence is lived out in full view of God. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his forgiveness. Thank God for the fact that he forgives those times even when we deliberately, willingly, blatantly disobey him. When we fail to allow what we, what we know and believe, we fail to allow that to rule the desires of our hearts. God is good. Thank the Lord. And yet even for those who have had their hypocrisy washed clean, we stand clean and forgiven, right? But that doesn't ensure that the choices we make won't harm others or won't bring some type of harm to ourselves. It can still hurt people. Will there be people who have witnessed your life? They watch your life, and maybe it's just a moment of your life, and they respond by saying something like this. You know, there was a time when I considered trusting, believing this whole Jesus thing. But when I saw so-and-so live as if God didn't even exist, I moved on. My friends, that would be a tragedy. We need to live coram deo. We need to make decisions with a clear understanding that God is with us. We're not alone. God was with Isaac, but in this snapshot, Isaac wasn't living like it. Number three, blessing, isolation, vandalism, and provision. 
God was true to his promise. He did bless Isaac, verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had provisions, uh, possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Clearly, God was blessing him. He was blessing him with material prosperity. Now, it's true that success is not always an indicator of God's blessing. Doesn't always mean that if you're successful, that that's the blessing of God. You could be wildly successful in business. You could be uh, a lottery winner. You could have your picture on the cover of Time magazine, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are right with God. That's pretty obvious. The opposite is also true, though. You could find yourself destitute. You might be the most unpopular kid at school. You might have contracted a life-threatening disease, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are not right with God. It may just be that that's the results of living in a sinful, fallen world, and God's actually going to work through that. He's going to graciously uh, use that to develop you into the person that he wants you to be. But here in Genesis 26, God's blessing in, Abraham, in Isaac's life, well, that came in the form of great wealth. In fact, Isaac was so successful, and this would have been noticeable, he blessed a hundredfold from what Isaac sowed in a time of famine when, when water was not plentiful. What is going on? It caught the gaze of his Philistine neighbors, and they became jealous they became so soured that they resorted to vandalism. Who does this outsider think he is? Let's see how successful he is when he doesn't have any water to water his herds or water his crops. And not only do they send him a message by filling up those wells, the king actually tells him, you know what, it's time, pack up, leave. You become mightier than us, get out. Verse 17, so Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servant dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land." And so after he left, he re-excavates these wells that his father had dug and they had been filled in. 
And that leads to a dispute over the ownership. So he digs another well. The same thing happens. Finally, he digs a well. No one argues over. And he responds by praising God, giving all credit to God. Verse 23 says this. From there, he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servant dug a well. In response to God's presence, in response to God's provision, Isaac worships. And he was right in doing that. To have had the success that he had in that time of famine... To have found water over and over again. I wonder how many times, how that, that land probably looked like Swiss cheese in a time of famine. Everyone was looking for water. Wells were probably being dug all over the place, and Philistines were probably having no success whatsoever. And what? Isaac digs here, he digs there. And every time he digs, water. What? Clearly, something is happening here. Clearly, God is providing, God was with him. God said he was with him. Did you catch it? Fear not, I am with you. At the beginning of the chapter, he said, I will be with you. Now he says, I am with you. Do you see it? Do you get it? The evidence is all over the place. Yes, there was opposition. Yes, there were setbacks. Yes, it must have been tremendously frustrating. Can you imagine you redig the well? There's water here. Oh, we're going to be good. Oh my gosh, now we have to give this and we have to move on again. Can you imagine? But Isaac, he pressed on in faith, knowing that God was with him. God was with him in the blessing. He was with him in the midst of vandalism. He was with him when others had cast him out. He was with him as he provided for his needs. You and I need to remember that God's presence does not come and go. It's not that he's here only when we feel it or when good things happen or when we're, when we're experiencing peace with others, peace in our households or we're experiencing some sort of prosperity. No, God is always present. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. He doesn't change. When provision and success come, we need to praise him for his presence. When hardship and turmoil and conflict and suffering come our way, he's still there. We need to call on him. We need to rely on him. We need to rest in him, knowing that he's near. One final snapshot. At some point, Abimelech, along with one of his advisors and the commander of his army, they make a visit to Isaac. And understandably, Isaac basically says, what are you doing here? You got rid of me. You kicked me out. I thought you didn't want to have anything to do with me. Look carefully at what they say to him in verse 28. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us because 
between you and us and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you and you have done nothing but, and, and have done nothing but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? When Isaac was told to stay there in Gerar, he was afraid. And God said, I'm with you. And now they're the ones who feel uneasy. Did you catch what Abimelech said to Isaac? We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Friends, lives lived coram Deo. When a life is lived out in light of the re reality that God is present, that testifies to a watching world. Yes, Abimelech and his people, they resented Isaac. They had done harm to Isaac. But in the end, God's presence was undeniable. They could see that his faith in God had made a difference in the way he lived. Through the ups, through the downs, God's presence had this profound impact and it shouted loud and clear to everyone who had witnessed it. Isaac was not alone. Friends, what do our lives testify to people around us? In the sunrise and in the storm. In the good times and the difficult times. In the moments of peace and the moments of conflict. In the seasons of ease and the seasons of pain. As he was for Isaac... He is there for us. Orson Welles was wrong. Thank God he was wrong. It is no illusion. God is with us. We are not alone. The question is, are we living in light of that reality? Are we allowing our knowledge of God's presence to keep us from following the fickle desires of our hearts and giving in to temptation? Are we allowing that reality to comfort and ease our souls in seasons of unrest? Are we, are we looking to God's presence in those moments when we need strength and we need courage to stand for what's right or endurance to keep on going when the resistance is heavy? Whether we feel it or not, whether we believe it or not, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we are not alone. 23rd Psalm should be the song of our lives. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Let's pray.